This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. All right, Charmers, today we're talking with Pat Flynn. We're going to talk about mindset, surprise, surprise, mitigating risk for new ventures, something called switch tracking, which is something that happens in your business and in your intimate relationships, something called the airport test, and planning for your business alongside your personal and family life. So welcome, guys and gals, to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all of the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with AOC by signing up at theartofcharm.com. We'll email you our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like nonverbal communication, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. And I'm also doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. We've also got our live programs running here in LA. In fact, people come from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you want to learn and grow. Looking forward to meeting you here at The Art of Charm. Now, Pat Flynn. How's everything going, by the way? Everything's going great, man. You know, holidays, uh, we're in the middle of it right now. Thanksgiving was great with the family, but I have this book thing coming up too, so that's been on top of mind, and you know, everything is moving really fast. It's been a lot of fun. It, it's been a blast, actually. Well, that's good, because it sounds extremely stressful, I'm not gonna lie, and it's one of the reasons why, one of the few reasons why I haven't done a book yet, even though everybody asks me about it, is because even though I'm, I've got great access to guys like you and Hal Elrod and, and Lewis and, and friends of mine, Michael Port, guys who've written books and just crushed it, it still scares the crud out of me because you just, so many things have to magically fall in place and then the list gods, AKA the New York Times, have to go, we don't dislike you and we won't editorialize our list, which they started doing now too. Yeah, for this book, this is actually self-published because I needed to have complete control of the experience that people have through this and all that stuff. But the New York Times list is definitely on the radar and you know, obviously Lewis just crushed it too. And I think you, you would do very, very well no matter when you decide to launch. I think it would definitely get up there quite fast. And when that do happens, let me know. I'd be more than happy to support you. That would be very cool. And I appreciate you saying so. Yeah, I think for me, it's like, look, I want to focus on email marketing because I've never really done that. And yeah. it's kind of a shame because there's people who've listened to the show for five years who are like, yeah, I'm not on your email list just because I never really did sign up. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I need to get my diehard fans on this list because you might hear my voice and go, I got to buy Jordan's book. But if you don't hear that show until 60 days after the book launches, it doesn't help. Right. And so I need everybody to be able to get like an overnight notification to literally run, go buy it. Yeah, totally. And like I said, you probably more than a lot of people or most people have all these amazing connections with others who can influence that buying decision too. Yeah, it's kind of like, look, I'm still building and well, I always will be building that sort of, we call it social capital where I can go, hey, would you mind, does it fit your editorial calendar? And hopefully people say yes, because I've helped them with the last, you know, two or three of their books, <laughs> you know, to, to do it. Exactly. I mean, that, that's what I'm doing right now. And that's why I reached out to you. And the 50 people I asked have all said yes, which is pretty amazing. That is cool. Uh, since a lot of people know who you are, you asked a lot of people to help you support with the book. I'm one of those people, obviously happy to do so. 
what would you do if somebody said, sorry, bro, I can't help you? Because I would feel pretty burned if I were in your shoes and I said, hey, remember all those things I did for you, which I wouldn't say, but hey, can you help me? And somebody who I've helped a bunch goes, nah, I'm busy or whatever. I don't know how I would react, actually. Yeah, I mean, you just kind of have to take that because people are busy, people have other things going on, and you can't expect that people are gonna bend over backwards for you, even though they might have said something earlier. And that's kind of what this book is about, because a lot of people will say they'll do something, but, I mean, if you're trying to do something like build a business, you wanna just make sure that that business is actually gonna work. You can't just trust what people are gonna say, you have to trust what people do. Now, when it comes to promoting a book, you know, I understand that other people have stuff going on, and. And obviously I'm very thankful that you agreed to do this and I'm very fortunate that actually most people that I asked had, had said yes and it's because we've been building this, like you said, social capital over time. I've been helping out people as much as possible. But if they were to say no, you know, that that's fine. We're still friends. And as long as they're not, you know, a-holes to me, then we're still friends and we'll just keep moving forward in that relationship and I'll just more than happy to share the book with somebody else who can fit me in their calendar. Yeah, I totally get that. And I think part of it is just fear that, somebody might not like me enough to share it or might not believe in the idea enough. I guess it's less personal and it's much more like, what if they don't like the idea and then you start believing that and you have to protect your mind when you're an entrepreneur. I've spent a lot of time. Imagine how much flack you get when you run a business like The Art of Charm, let alone any other venture. I just wrote an article about this for Founders Mag and one of the quotes in there that they dragged out of me was, look, when I first started The Art of Charm, People made fun of me that I liked, you know, they were making fun of me. And even it was like everybody but my parents and my best friends were like, oh, yeah, no one's going to buy that. No one's going to pay for that. And then when even when I started making money, a lot of people were like, people pay you for that. What losers? What idiots? And I was like, OK, I got to ignore this, because if I listen to these chumps, I'm screwed. Yeah, the chumps who aren't in your target audience, who aren't gonna pay you a dime, who aren't going to take action based on what you teach. It's those people who you know you can serve, who you've created this content for. That's what's most important in any sort of validation or ask of any kind. And one of the lessons that I took away from that was that you have to have steely resolve when other people don't believe in you because you don't really know their motivations. I've mentioned this on the show before, but some people will say, look, that's not gonna work, and you think, oh my God, even my own mom doesn't believe in me. She's trying to protect you, right? right Whereas right. some people, well, maybe she is, but hopefully, some people <laughs> will say, I don't believe you're gonna get into that because they're jealous or they're angry about their own life, and I look back with very clear hindsight at a lot of my law school friends a decade ago who made fun of The Art of Charm, or nine years ago now, mm -hmm. and a lot of them are like, I so envy you for striking out on your own, that's so awesome, I'm happy to see your success, and I'm thinking, scroll up in this message thread, you punk. Look at you tearing me a new one. Go to AIM. Yeah. Check the history. Yeah. Look at what you said. And, and it's so true. And you know what? Some of them were my friends trying to protect me, and some of them were miserable as all hell, and they wanted me to go down and join them. And now I see that they're clear as well. And it's really an interesting phenomenon. But if you don't have that gift of being in the game for nine plus years, 10 years, you're probably dealing with this right now. Nobody comes up to me now and goes, huh, you're never gonna succeed. Cause I'm just like, scoreboard mofo, right? <laughs> I mean, when did that stop happening to you? I mean, it even still happens to me because people just can't believe it or they wanna not put themselves down by putting other people down. It's just human nature and you're right, it's just something you have to deal with. And, and, and I would be scared if people weren't 
always so supportive. It always puts things into perspective when you have those people who come up and just say you're not able to do things. And because you're able to really use that as motivation, you could either use that to demotivate yourself or use that to motivate yourself. And I think most people in our default sort of lives, we take that information and we use it as negative energy. We have that just put us down where you could easily just flip that around and that just shows you how important the mindset is in all of this stuff. Everything you teach, Jordan, everything anybody teaches, it all starts with the mindset and you can use that stuff externally that happens internally in any way that you want. It's just, it all starts with the mind and how you see it. This is powerful because everyone deals with it. I don't care who you are and you start a business. If it's an internet-based business, it doesn't matter. I mean, you could start a car dealership Unless your whole family's in the car dealership business, somebody around you who's close to you is gonna say this isn't gonna work, and you should be careful. And again, it goes back to their motivations, which end up at the end of the day being irrelevant, but you've gotta protect your mind. I, I used to have protect your mind written on my shower door because it was that important of an idea back when we first started. And there's one thing when people say, that's not gonna work, and then that's where it ends. It's right. Like, Okay, thanks. Thanks, uh, knucklehead, but, yeah. But there's other people who are like, that's not gonna work because you know I know you. And then you get into, okay, let's break this down and see if you're actually true in what you're saying and you have something to support it. Like, are you gonna support that or are you just being an, an a-hole and just saying that? And so you kind of have to feel things out. And yeah, it's just part of being an entrepreneur, part of doing anything awesome. This is just the universe's way of, of showering you with resistance to actually test you to see if this is something that, you actually wanna do, and that happens externally from these other people, and also internally when we try to stop ourselves, and there's several occasions that I've wanted to do that, even while writing this book, I'm, I've been wanting to give up, and even at the start of my business, I've wanted to give up several times, but it was the other people who I know that are out there who I know I could serve, that's what's kept me moving forward, so you know, as much as other people say stuff, and I continue to get people to say stuff, I get haters every once in a while. I've seen that, and I'm like, God, what a jerk for no reason, because. I've met you a bunch of times. You're one of the nicest guys I've met in a long time. Thanks, so when man, someone's like, you. you're a punk fraudster, I'm like, really, dude? I don't know about this guy. <laughs> I would be worried if I wasn't getting that because that means I wasn't being bold. When you're being bold with something, you're gonna get some people who are just gonna be upset by it. But I would be more worried if everybody thought I was just a perfect rainbow and unicorn. Don't worry, plenty of people hate you. You don't have to worry about that. Perfect. <laughs> but let me ask you a little curveball question here. Where do we draw and how, more importantly, do we draw the line between, oh man, this guy's just being a hater, you don't know, I'm gonna change the world, and oh my God, they're right, this is really a terrible idea, and I should probably listen to some of this feedback. Yeah, I think it all comes down to respect, because the haters, in, in my definition, are those who are just trying to stir stuff up, they are not trying to help you, they're just trying to help themselves feel better, and just playing a game out of it. And, and to those people who disrespect, you know, I've had, I had one person one time, uh, this was back in 2011, I, I believe. He had left a really nasty comment on my site, about five, six paragraphs in length, just calling me a fraud uh, and all this other stuff. And, you know, I had a little chat with him on the comments and he was just, you know, whatever, dude. And I was like, fine, just one instance on my website, that's fine. And then I started to get all these emails from my friends, people who had featured me on their podcast, whose blogs I guest posted on. And those emails were, Pat, who's this guy who's left this comment on my site? It's like six paragraphs long, talking all this mad shit about you. Who is this guy? And I discovered that this person left this same exact comment, even before I was able to respond to him on my own site, in probably over 50 different websites where I was featured too. And he was just out 
to get me for whatever reason. And I actually reached out to him and I said, why are you doing, I really want to know why you're doing this. Like, please just enlighten me here. Like, fine, you've done this and we can move forward from here, but just tell me why you did this. And uh, he ended up replying and said, you know, I know you're a popular blogger and uh, you just seem like an easy target. I thought I can get more traffic if I did it. Whoa, crap strategy. That's terrible. Yeah, that was just all kinds of bad. And I was just like, what? Like, really? And then I, then I've kind of felt sorry for him. And I was like, wow, you just don't know what you're supposed to do. And this isn't your fault. This is just you just suck. Yeah, you're like a pro troll with a very low ceiling where you're going to plateau. Yeah. So again, it goes back to that respect. This person obviously didn't know what it was like to show respect to somebody else. And you could still criticize, you could still not agree with what somebody says and be respectful. But I do get a lot of comments from my audience. My audience is amazing because every time I go into a direction that I'm, you know, that isn't me, uh, they're very quick to let me know. And a lot of people get very loud about that. But in that, they are still respectful. And because of that, I'm able to listen. And, you know, when I get these comments, when, when anybody gets comments from people who are being respectful, who are obviously trying to help or feel a certain way because of something you're doing, it's important to listen. It doesn't mean you have to react right away. And that's another thing that I make sure I don't do because I used to be that way. I used to have people comment about something in a blog post and, you know, they'd point out something that maybe they didn't agree with and I would just erase it right away because I was like, oh man, I made somebody upset. Yeah, F this guy, let's, let's bury this under the rug. Yeah, exactly. But then I realized that, you know, sometimes you just have to sleep on it and just let those nerves calm down a little bit before you can actually start thinking about something rationally. That's a really good idea, and that's something from Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and I'm gonna screw up the example, but I wanna say like Mark Twain or some other famous guy wrote a scathing letter to somebody, and years later, they were like, oh, why did I do this? And his wife's like, oh, I never mailed that. Yeah, I think it was Lincoln sending it to a general who screwed up and got a whole bunch of people killed. Right, yeah, something like that. Slash Mark Twain, slash George Washington, slash Gandhi, whoever gets it <laughs> misquoted as much. Some everywhere. hero. Some hero, that, yeah, because they can't attribute that to, like, this guy, this man, the same guy, didn't do anything else his whole life, but this is what we took away from this story. Right. You have to attribute it to somebody famous and mythical in American lore. But again, I want to get down a little bit more fine with this question, a little bit more fine-grained, because you're still going to have respectful people like relatives, your own wife, your girlfriend, who's going to go genuinely out of fear or fear for themselves or for you. Look, you can't start a business. I'm pregnant. Or look, you can't start a business. You're going to go bankrupt. Or if you do go bankrupt, what are we going to do? We have kids. That isn't just you're an idiot. You can never do it. It's they're worried that you know, it's going to cause you a massive hardship and them as well, or just you. Right. In that sense, you got to really focus on the communication and why and the reasons you're doing things and also make them feel safe. That's really what it's all about. I mean, I remember uh, Darren Rouse from problogger.net. He was kind of my idol when I was starting with, with blogging. And he had told the story about when he started podcasting, his wife was feeling the same way. Like, no, th this isn't going to work. How is this going to support us? And then they eventually came to an agreement through conversation. Well, okay, Darren, you have until this date to make X amount of dollars to show me that this is actually gonna work. If not, then you have to go back to this other thing that you were doing. And so I think, again, this just goes back to making the other person understand where you're coming from 
but also you understanding where they're coming from and then you can actually talk it out and make sense of it all. And if that means you need to have some sort of uh, emergency fund in place or a backup plan uh, just in case, or if, if it means sacrificing something uh, in order to get things done that doesn't hinder the relationship that you have with that other person or get in the way, you know, there are ways to make it work. You just got to figure it out and, and also be creative in, in the way that you kind of rearrange your time. I think that's important, right? Because if you talk with people about it and you get the root down of why why they're objecting, a lot of it has to do with fears that can be assuaged. Like, yeah, maybe it's not a great time for you to start a business because of the risk to your family, but what can you do to mitigate it? And then you're not just arguing, you don't believe in me. You know, you're not mm -hmm, doing that mm -hmm. thing. You're going, oh, you're worried that I'm going to be having a huge opportunity cost that's going to make it so that we can't effectively raise our kids. Okay, what if I borrow the money from friends and family who aren't going to foreclose our house instead of from a bank? You know, that might be a little bit something. Or what if I do this on the side for a year just to prove the concept, which by the way, you should do anyway if you mm -hmm. have a high risk of <laughs> leaving your family homeless. And unless you're 21, you should be definitely mitigating everything. So I think that makes it clearer. Often communication among entrepreneurs and their significant others, in my experience in EO and just hanging out with guys like you, often that problem that those fights start because of a lack of really clear communication about what they're even talking about. Right. There's a clear misalignment in what each of the different people are arguing about. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Right, because she's really saying, I'm worried that you're gonna make it so we have to send our kids to public schools and the schools where we live are crap. And you're saying, you're hearing you don't believe in me because really I secretly harbor a low opinion of you in terms of your capability. This reminds me of an episode of, I can't remember what the show was, but it was this guy who was like an anniversary with his wife and he gave her a rose and she was pissed because she had told him a long time ago. This is Louis, Louis yes. C.K. Yeah. Yes, yes. 
she had told him a long time ago that she didn't want roses. And he was like, but I got you the rose. And so she was hearing you weren't listening to me. He's hearing, well, you don't appreciate this gift I just gave you. And they had this argument. They were both in completely different arguments. You know what this is called? This is called switch tracking. Yes, you're absolutely right. You heard that on a podcast. Yeah. I, you know what? I think it was Hidden Brain, actually. Yeah, yeah. I remember that because it was like number one podcast for a while. I'm like, what's this about? Yes, exactly. Good stuff. Good. Well, you have great taste in podcasts so far. Yeah, so do you. Um, <laughs> anyway, tell us a little bit about what you do, because right now half the audience is like, yeah, Pat Flynn. And the other half is like, who is this guy? They're Googling you and they're not even paying attention to what we're saying. It, they're like, that's Pat Flynn. I thought it would be like this white Irish guy with red hair, but it's this like weird looking guy with thick eyebrows. Who's uh, this asian not not Irish guy? I always play that game because everybody always asks, what are you? And I'm like, trying to guess. and. Nobody, nobody guesses it because I'm like 12 different things, but that might sound weird to a lot of people. But anyway, I, I'm an entrepreneur. I actually got laid off in 2008 coming from the architecture world. My whole dream, my whole life growing up was to become an architect. That's what I always wanted to do ever since I came out of the womb and started playing with Legos and all that stuff. Went to school for that, got my dream job out of college, working at this amazing architecture firm in the Bay Area, got laid off and uh, just didn't really know what was gonna happen because I didn't have a plan B. And I was the person who growing up would do everything the way I was supposed to. I was following the course to a, to a T. 4.2 average in, in high school, 4.0 average in college, got the dream job, started climbing the corporate ladder. And to make a long story short, I actually ended up creating a business helping people pass an exam that I had previously taken in the architecture world. And that, after about a year, after creating that, turned into a six-figure business, uh, making over $200,000 a year, and then I built smartpassiveincome.com to talk about how I built this business. Uh, this business was very much based off of Tim Ferriss's teachings and, and the four-hour work week with automation and building it in a way where it could work for me instead of the other way around. And so this is where smart passive income comes from because you can set up these systems of automation and create businesses that can then work for you. It doesn't happen overnight. There's no such thing as overnight success or get rich quick, but with the age we live in now, we have the ability to create something that could serve an audience and you can continually get paid in return for that without actually having to be there and trade your time for money. And that's that's what I talk about on the site. I build businesses publicly. I share what happens. And a lot of times it doesn't go the way I expected or the, the way I want it to, but it's always a lesson. Uh, a lot of people enjoy hearing about my failures, but I've been getting a lot of steam here and, and have been put in this space of leadership in the in the age of transparency online. I share my income reports every single month on the website too, down to the penny and where each of those uh, pennies come from. And you know now I'm doing uh, keynote speeches and you and I have spoken at conferences together and um, authoring books and just, I mean, the coolest thing about all this and, and the reason why I love to share what I do is because what this online business stuff has allowed me to do, which is spend most of my time with my kids at home. My family's the number one most important thing to me. I have a six-year-old, he um, he's in kindergarten, and a three-year-old daughter. I've witnessed all of their firsts. I get to go with my wife every single day to pick him up from school, and, and or bring him to school and pick him up, and, and we get like looks from the teachers and stuff like, how, what do you do? How are you able to come to school every day, both of you? And like, it's an amazing lifestyle, and, and you know, I, a lot of people love uh, building businesses to travel, to buy fancy cars, and buy these amazing houses, and for me, it's all about family. Whatever your reason for doing what you do, you should be creating something to help you make that happen, and that, that's what I teach. I think that's important, and one of the things that's a key takeaway from that that I wanna highlight is that you didn't start teaching people how to make money online and then make money online and then continue to teach people how to make money online, <laughs> which is my chief gripe that I have yeah. with a lot of people 
just to highlight this because I think it's crucial, you made your first bit of money online teaching this exam study strategy or whatever it was. And, and that's very important because otherwise you're simply a pyramid scheme, a Ponzi scheme, if you will, because all you're doing is lying about how you I made a ton of money online just by my system. And people are buying a system that actually doesn't work unless you're actually selling coaching about how to make money online, which is awful, in my opinion, and very unethical. Right. I mean, I've built uh, several other businesses. I have a business in the security guard training space. I have a website to help teach people how to start a food truck. I also have an app company with over 27 apps live on iTunes. I have a software company as well. You know, I do a lot of these experiments and I kind of consider myself the crash test dummy because, again, it doesn't always go well. But every time I crash, you know, I can look at that data, see what happens and then and then, you know, put myself on the line again. I think that's really important as well, the lifestyle angle, because there's a lot of people that are they're different with their goals and there's sort of a a moralistic aspect to when you're younger you're like I want all this stuff I need the trappings of this but when you get a little bit older and now I just sound old probably I don't even have kids but one of the things that me and AJ both my business partner here at the Art of Charm have been looking to design the company around since we were in our late 20s is look eventually we're going to have kids we don't want to be working 15 plus hour days like we might be now when we have kids that are 10. We want to hang out with them. We want to be able to take two weeks off or even a month off or more and take them somewhere over their school vacations with their friends whose parents work for a bank and they never see, right? We need to be those parents that are around all the time. So our partners are involved in the business. Our friends are largely involved in the business. That may or may not be a good idea and largely happens by accident slash organically. But the key point is, look, we need to be able to be replaced as much as possible and discover this flexibility that allows us to do things at home. And we can get into a sort of specifics about that in another show with, you know, how do the heck do you keep your kids from bugging you while you're working might be a totally different uh, episode entirely. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. But I, I love what you're saying here because it's important to look ahead. I think a lot of people work for tomorrow or they work for next month. But I think, you know, that creating that five-year plan is really important. But every time I hear the word five-year plan, I'm like, oh, okay, boring exercise, you know, when, you know, we hear that all the time, but, and it's hard to do because there's no context, but, you know, I have a, I have a, a little thought experiment that I want to share with your audience that has worked really well for me. And, and I shared this in the book too. And it's called what I like to call the airport test. And this actually comes from part of the hiring process that Keller Williams Incorporated uses. They are uh, Gary Keller and Jay Papasan. They work for that company. They've also authored one of my favorite books called The One Thing. Uh, you might've heard of it. And um, they use this in their hiring process. It's called the airport test where essentially, Jordan, if I were to say, let's say, for example, we stop talking to each other for whatever reason. And five years down the road, we meet each other, we see each other at the airport. And I'm like, dude, Jordan, what's up, man? Like, how's life doing? And you say, life is awesome. And then I say, well, tell me about it. Like, why is life awesome? And then from there, you can kind of really think about, well, why is life awesome? What would make you five years from now say that life is awesome? And there's a there's a cooler exercise that goes with this. So if you take a sheet of paper, for example, and you fold it into four quadrants, you title each of the quadrants, you know, one of the four most important things or categories in your life. So for me, my, my four things are family, professional, finances, and health. And once you're there, then in each of those quadrants, you write down just what it is that would make you say that it's awesome five years from now. So for example, in family, 
I wrote down, you know, April, my wife and I are 11 years into our marriage and we're both madly in love with each other still. Uh, I get to go with April to school, drop off, pick up the kids every day. I cook, we have dinner as a family almost every day of the week. I'm 100% present with my family uh, mentally when I am with them physically. We take vacations every couple months. Kids are super interested in entrepreneurship. Like those are what I envision, the reasons why I would say life is awesome five years from now related to family. And then once you fill out this whole sheet, it just becomes this amazing plan. And just the fact that you wrote it down, just the fact that it's there kind of influences every single decision that you make from that point forward. And so that's why in the book, when I talk about, well, validating your business idea, yeah, that's important. How is it going to actually prove to be successful in the market that you're trying to get into? But also the other part of that was, how is this business idea actually going to fit into that plan, into your five years, life is awesome down the road in the airport. You know, that's why I haven't done certain businesses that I know I could do. For example, one of the things that has come across the table so many times because of the amount of uh, cloud I have in the podcasting space and that sort of thing. I know what you're going to say. Go for it. I'm totally on the same page with you. Do it. Lay it out there. So I've always had a lot of people say, Pat, like, go do this idea. I have this idea for you and I know it could be successful. I know it could be something that I can create an exit for eight, nine figures for. Uh, and that is to create, you know, a podcast hosting company. And there is a desperate need for that. But if I were to do that right now, the entire family quadrant of my sheet would disappear. That is totally not what I thought you were going to say, by the way, but finish that thought and I'll swallow my hat. Yeah, I'd love to hear what you thought. But uh, just to say that, you know, this business idea isn't right for me right now. And um, even though I had validated that, it's just not something I can do right now because of what is actually important to me. And it's very hard to do because there's a lot of opportunities there. But because I have this sheet in front of me and I know it's important, I know that it's very easy for me to say no right now. I thought what you were gonna say was public speaking and doing the speaking circuit because first of all, you speak a ton and I speak a lot now as well. But when I started speaking, and putting the word out that I wanted to speak, I was like, oh, I gotta tell people who are in my network that I wanna speak, and I put the word out, and like a month later, I had booked out the entire year, and I immediately regretted it, because I had all of these kind of, not totally ideally my fee, and not really in that cool of a place, and maybe the audience doesn't jive that well, but they think it's gonna be cool, so I've gotta tailor it, and it became a huge pain, because I realized, wow, I'm gonna be gone for months and it's gonna take away from my core business, and I'm not gonna be with Jen, and there's a billion other things that are wrong with this, and so I ended up canceling in advance, don't worry, a ton of gigs for speaking, because I realized, wow, I don't really wanna do this. I don't wanna be gone, because you and I both know some of these professional speakers, they're on flights three times a week. It sounds like a nightmare. Oh yeah, I know that you're right. I could go down that route too, and. I think just subconsciously because I know that that would be the case and I have my family quadrant all filled out that I don't even think about doing that. It's not even anything I would even think about doing because it just doesn't align with what I want to do. Yes, I could do it. Yes, I would be able to make a lot of money. I'm getting paid up to 20K now per keynote. But yeah, totally. I'm, I'm right there with you. It's funny how that's what you're thinking about. But hopefully that other example made sense too. The other example makes really good sense too. I, I guess that's probably a more common problem than entrepreneurs generally have because you have to get to some level where you're 
publicly maybe recognized to get a lot of speaking gigs to the point where it becomes a problem. But if right. you're a quiet entrepreneur, like if you ran a podcast hosting company, not a ton of people would be like, the CEO of this random podcast hosting company is coming to our university. It's going to be so exciting. The more public facing you are and the more kind of gimmicky they can spin it, like smart, passive income. He doesn't even work. He just collects checks, all that BS that people probably assume when they first read your website. But yeah, I don't know any entrepreneur, any small business owner, especially online, that isn't bombarded with ideas. And I get them myself, my business partner, and I think them up all the time. My producer, Jason, and I are like, you know what we should do? We could do this consult. And then after we have a couple glasses of whiskey and wake up the next day, we're like, that's an awesome idea that we're never going to do. Yeah. It's a great thought exercise. Yeah. It's hard to put those down too, because it's like, who knows, right? Who knows? But you know what's important and you know that that's not going to fit into that. Now back to Pat Flynn. Yeah, it becomes a huge problem because if you're capable and you see the gaps and the needs and things like that, you're like, man, I could set this up and eight months later it would be this. But the dot, 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 the hidden sort of bracket in there is, but I would probably never see my family. Right. I mean, the big thing that people prioritize is the money that could potentially come with those ideas. But we always forget about, well, the time and not just time to create that idea. But where is that time being taken away from? Because whenever you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And so, you know, I always think about that when I make these decisions moving forward. So what's the validation formula? You do talk about it in the book. How do you validate your ideas? And first, why is it important and how do we do it? Well, I mean, it's very important because you don't wanna waste that time and money that you put into an idea that knowing that maybe down the road it's not gonna work for you internally in terms of your life goals, but even in the market, a lot of people have built and spent a lot of time and money and effort. I mean, we see this when we watch Shark Tank, for example. You see these people come in with these things that they've been working on for years and they put their life savings into it. And if only they had done a few things, they would have been able to tell that this was a terrible idea and would have saved years of their life and thousands of dollars and could have used that energy and effort on, on something else. So there's the you know idea of validating with yourself. I gave you, gave you an exercise with that. But moving on to the market, you know, there's a lot of things you can do. The first thing you need to do is see what else is out there serving that market already. So there's this thing called the market map that you know I have people explore in this book, and that is discovering your three Ps. And the three Ps are discovering where that market exists, like where online, where in the world are those people who are in that target market? Also, the people, that's the second P, the people. Who are the other influencers out there, the people that are serving this market? And then also what products? What are they paying for already? Once you start to discover what those things are, I mean, the places, I mean, as a byproduct of doing this exercise, you get, okay, here's where my audience is. Here are the people who could I could potentially partner with or who could be great people to help me get my launch. And here are the products that I could become an affiliate for you know, come in at a different angle with. And once you get this map, you get to see like what position you could take in the market because you need to understand like nobody's gonna come toward you, nobody's gonna see you unless you stand out in this market. And how do you know where to stand if you don't even know what's there? So this market map, this, this discovering of what exists out there already is really, really important. And a lot of times when people run through this exercise with this idea in mind, that idea immediately changes because they start to see, the, like you said, these gaps and these things in the market. And then from there, you know, we talk about in the book, the customer plan and the PLAN, that's another acronym, because th this is sort of my alternative to figuring out who your customer avatar is. I love that exercise of finding out who your avatar is, you know, that idealistic target customer, the person you're trying to speak to every time you're on the, on the microphone or the person you're trying to serve on your product. 
but I just never really fully grasped it and never really liked it because it's not real. You know, this customer avatar that we make up, some of us even given them an, a, a name and they have this like fake story about their life and stuff. And I, I get that, I get the purpose behind that exercise, but it's just, you can't feel for a person that's not real. And so through this research, through discovering the customer plan, you're able to find real people with real pains and problems and uh, actually give them something that could potentially be a solution. And then from there, you go through the actual validation formula, and I'll show that in a second, to test and actually potentially get paid for that idea even before you create it. That's the number one way to validate is to actually get paid for something before you actually create it. A person voting with their actions, not their words. Now this customer plan, PLAN, the acronym, the first is discovering their pains and problems. And there's a number of different ways to do that. The second thing is to discover the language that they use. So not just the pains and problems that they share, but how are they describing that? Because it was Jay Abraham who said, if you can describe the problem better than your target customer, they will automatically assume that you have a solution. So not only do you have to figure out the pains, but you have to figure out how they actually say that because then they'll feel that connection to you. And so there's a cool little trick I wanna share with you that you can use to find where all this is happening online specifically. And that is a little trick I like to call the Google Sniper search trick. I don't know if that's a real thing or not, but that's what I just made up for the book. But you, you know how when you put in a search bar in Google quotations around your search, it just finds that exact phrase? Sure. If you add on the end of that, so you're looking for a certain phrase and then you add a site, S-I-T-E, colon, and then a URL for a specific site, it looks for all instances of what's in that quotation in that website. So here's how you would use this. If you wanna find what people need help with on a particular website, go to a forum, for example, find the top forum on your topic or whatever, this idea that you have. You can actually type in forum colon and then a keyword to find all the forums. Find the top forum and then you type in something like, I need, in quotations, and then site colon and then that URL. And that's gonna spit out every single, Google will show you every single instance on that forum where people are saying the words, I need. And you can go in there and do some incredible customer research and discovery of what it is that your audience needs. You can also look up I hate or why is it, when can I, what is the, how come, need help. You can also find, which is the third letter in plan uh, A, the anecdotes. You can find stories. And this is where you get the real connections. You get the feels for, for people. You're not just thinking about made up people through your avatar. That You're finding real people out there that you can then reach out to and discover and actually feel their pain. And so if you look up in the same way using that sniper trick, Comments like, awesome story, great story, thank you for that, that sort of thing. You'll be able to find and actually pull away real stories about your audience. And then through discovering the pains and the language and looking at these stories, you can then come up with the N, which is your, the need that they have, or the hypothesis, and that's what you put through the test. You then validate it through this process that so many other entrepreneurs have, have used in the past. You know, this validation thing, it, it isn't actually new. A lot of people have talked about this before. Tim Ferriss actually has a chapter in his book called Testing the Muse, where he talked about microtesting. And I don't know if you've read this, uh, but you might remember a little case study he did where- Google AdWords with the title, right? Yeah, exactly, with the, with the title, with Google AdWords to a sales page. And on that sales page was a buy now button. He was tracking how many people were clicking the buy now button to test that idea before he actually turned it into a real business. And that was like a huge revelation for people, but he never, followed it up or, or talked about it much, and, and a few people have tried and attempted to do that, and, and that's what really this book is trying to solve now. So the validation process works like this. Once you have this hypothesis of something you wanna potentially have become a business or, an, or a product, step one is to get in front of an audience. Get in front of an audience. It doesn't have to be your audience. If you have an audience that you've built already, well then you're ahead already, but 
this is where a lot of people struggle when they look up how to validate an idea because a lot of these people who are teaching validation talk about, well, the audience that you've already built. But a lot of people who have ideas don't have an audience yet. So actually, I go through a number of different strategies you can use to get in front of somebody else's audience to potentially validate that product. So from there, once you get in front of that audience, you wanna hyper-target that audience, which means you're gonna get in front of that audience. Not everybody in that audience is actually gonna be interested in what you have to offer. So you wanna hyper-target those who that solution would be meant for. So let's say, for example, you are helping out wedding photographers with your solution. Well, let's say you land a great guest post on a photography site. You don't want every photographer on that site to come and check out your solution and potentially pay for it because a lot of them aren't wedding photographers. So it doesn't really matter. So you kind of hyper-target. You get those people in that audience to raise their hand and say, yeah, that's me, I have that problem. And once you find out who those people are, step three is to interact with those prospects and actually just confirm that this is a problem that they have. And once you get them to say yes to those things, that's when you present your solution. You gauge the interest from there, the interest from there, and then you ask for the transaction. And there are a number of different ways that you can do that through pre-ordering or literally having people just send you money through PayPal. I don't know if you know this, but this is how Noah Kagan validated sumo jerky. That business makes uh, tens of thousands of dollars a month through a beef jerky subscription service, and he validated that using this same exact process in 24 hours. That's insanity that only Noah Kagan can really produce. I mean, not really, actually anybody can do this, but it doesn't surprise me that he actually did that and is basically paying for his mortgage because of beef jerky. Beef jerky, right, yeah. And there's a whole section of this book that is made up of case studies of people doing this in all different spaces from uh, Buffer App was one another one who did it, which is a popular website. Yeah, I use that. Membership sites, uh, people in the food industry, people who, I just interviewed somebody for the book and featured him. He's a PE, he does physical education, and he was able to validate some stuff with other physical education PE coaches around the world. There was one case study of somebody who validated a uh, supplement, a cricket protein supplement, literally made of crickets. Mm, yum. And you know all this other cool stuff. So it, it's just really cool because this, this stuff is available to us now. It hasn't always been available to do this. We haven't had the tools to be able to actually go out and validate and collect pre-orders and actually test our idea beforehand. You know. Traditionally, it was you spend a lot of time and money on something, you build it, you go to your roof and you just yell, hey guys, look what I got, come get it. And a lot of times nobody knows who, about it. But if you go out there and follow these strategies, you're able to validate this idea beforehand before you actually then build it out or you validate that it's not a good idea and you can move on to something else much sooner. I, I just gave Jason a bunch of protein bars. He didn't like them. Were those cricket bars? Is that why you don't like them, Jason? No, you gave me sawdust bars. I, I actually really like cricket bars, but the ones you gave me, I think were uh, sawdust. Like, like two by fours that were scraped off the floor of Home Depot. <laughs> but cricket bars are actually pretty tasty. That's surprising. So, so basically, whatever I sent you as a gift was actually much worse than dead ground up insect <laughs> yep. candy bars. It's a delicacy in some parts of the world. Look, I've eaten my share of crickets. I just figured they wouldn't taste great mashed into a bar, but lo and behold, I am wrong. You know what? That's why you don't ask your friends if it's going to succeed. You test it. Yep. Because I, I think a lot of people would go, cricket bars, oh, it's disgusting. It's a novelty. No one's going to buy that. Meanwhile, cha-ching, right? Right, right. And, you know, these people who validated it's actually a powder, cricket powder, that you could put in a, in a drink or some, some sort of liquid. They started at the gym. So they just went to the gym, the people who they know were interested in some sort of protein supplement, and asked them what was important about that. And a lot of them were like, well, it needs to be all natural, it needs to have a high protein concentration and, and all this stuff, low sugar and all this. Uh, they validated it and then they were able to go back to those people and say, hey, this is the stuff that you said was important. This matches that. Would you buy this? If yes, then pay up front and uh, we'll give it to you at a discount price and uh, 
if we get this many who say yes, we'll actually go to production with it. Like Indiegogo or GoFundMe, I can't remember, there's so many. GoFundMe, Kickstarter, I mean, those are marketplaces where validation is happening all the time and they kind of facilitate that, but you don't necessarily need to use that, plus you have all the other pledge gifts that you have to give out uh, to people, but it is a chapter in the book, crowdfunding, it is a great way to validate too. I love it, willitflybook.com is where you get that, and we'll link to that in the show notes, but what else do you cover? It can't just be the validation formula, right? No, there's a lot more to it. You know, the market research is important. That's in a section called flight planning and then kind of- There's a whole lot of clever airplane crap in it, first of all. Brace yourself for that. There, there is. I, I took a lot out, actually, because it was getting too much, but there is a lot of flying metaphors. I mean, the whole reason for this was because the story that the book starts out with is, uh, involves my son. So when my son turned three, for example, you know, I wanted to share with him this amazing thing uh, that my dad taught me, which was how to build a paper airplane. You know, he was three, I, I thought it was the right time. So I built this paper airplane for him and he, he loved it. Like it flew across the room, he was just, he was like jumping around. He's like, I wanna do it, I wanna do it. So of course, he grabs a sheet of paper and then before I could even teach him how to do it, he was just folding it and, you know, crumpling it up and just it turned into this thing that didn't even look like a plane. Uh, it looked more like a boat. And <laughs> w- when he threw it, it, of course, didn't go anywhere. He picked it up again, threw it, landed at his feet. And then he said, I hate paper airplanes. Oh, that's too bad. And yeah, I was like, no, his paper airplane career cannot end like this. No. And this is how a lot of people build their businesses too. You know, they see somebody else doing something cool and they, they do it, they, they put a lot of the motions into place, but they aren't doing it in the right way and they just don't understand the concepts and, and then they try to make it fly and it just is a dud and then they give up, right? And so that, that's kind of where this will it fly thing came about and plus it's a play on, you know, when you launch something, well, that's just one part of it. What, is it actually gonna fly after you, quote, launch it, which is a term used in business all the time? So that's that. And one of the other thought experiments that, that I like to share is uh, something I like to call the Oprah test, because this is important. We had talked about a little bit uh, back in the episode here about you know either getting in the front of your business, being that person that everybody can recognize, or kind of being behind the scenes and which one works out for you. So the Oprah test is essentially a thought experiment where Oprah uh, all of a sudden decides that she's going to feature your product idea in front of the entire world. You know, it's one of her favorite things for the year. And of course, when people are featured as one of her favorite things, they get famous, they get, you know, a ton of money, of course. But how would you feel? Would you be comfortable being on camera and being connected and talking about your particular idea? If not, that doesn't mean you don't drop your business. It just means that you aren't gonna be comfortable as the face of your business. It kind of helps you figure out, okay, well, what is the approach that I want in my business? Or is there actually somebody else that is needed? And where's my place in my business? So there's a lot of cool things like that, again, which take these lessons and put them into context. And probably one of the most important parts is the fact that even before we get into the validation stuff, I reference an article by Kevin Kelly called uh, Your Thousand True Fans. And I talk a little bit in detail about why that's important. And I was actually interviewed by Andrew Warner uh, a good friend of ours uh, over at Mixergy, and he is just one of the most intense interviewers of all time. He started the interview by saying why, despite hundreds of people asking him to have me on the show, he kept saying no. And it was because he just didn't like the idea of the fact that passive income was a part of my domain name and the fact that I was potentially teaching people how to be lazy with building their businesses, which was obviously not the case, but that was his reasoning, and that's how he started the show. And so he was like, telling me the story, he's like, what do you think of that? How am I supposed to react to that, right? Well, further down the interview, he he eventually started to learn that I was building a lot of these little niche sites and the architecture site that I had that was you know, serving uh, the architecture space and, and making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And then he came at, at me with a question, which was, well, Pat, like, you're building all this small stuff. Like, you aren't making a huge dent in the world with what you do. Why don't you try and figure out how to create the next Excel 
Excel is used by everybody, students, business owners. It's changed people's lives. How are you doing that with these small things that you're doing? And I was like, whoa, that's a question. But then I said, you know what? I might not be changing the world with these small things that I'm doing, but I'm changing somebody's world because to somebody, this is the most important thing in their life right now. And if I can be that person to help them through that and get through it much quicker and have what I'm doing be a convenience for them, then that's a win. And going back to the thousand true fans thing, Kevin Kelly, the basic premise of that article is, and this was meant for musicians and artists and, and you know starving artists, struggling artists and, and musicians and that sort of thing, but it's, it applies to everybody, especially entrepreneurs or anybody trying to make a living. If you get a thousand people in this entire world, I was like seven billion people now, if you have just a thousand people in this world who love what you do so much, who are true fans of what you have to offer, that they'll pay you $100 a year for something. That's less than 10 bucks a month. And I don't know about you, Jordan, but I pay more than 100 bucks a month for stuff that I hardly even use, you know, like cable and things like that. That's because you're irresponsible. I am irresponsible. <laughs> but yeah, everybody does that occasionally. Cable is like the chief culprit. Right, it is. It's just the example we always use. But if you have a thousand people paying you a hundred bucks a year, you have a six figure a year income. Again, the numbers aren't really important here. Yes, there's taxes involved and all that stuff if you want to get technical, but it just shows you that you don't need to serve an incredible amount of people to make an incredible difference in your life and in the, the lives of those people. And uh, it really puts things into perspective. And so I, I lead with that into the validation stuff just to say that, you know, not everybody in the world is gonna love what you're doing or that solution that, or that idea you have, but not everybody has to. Just the people who it's for, that's who it should be made for and kind of just sets up the whole validation formula. Well, thank you so much for this and for your time and insight on this. I think it's hard to find people who are, one, willing to be an open book about a lot of personal stuff as well as business stuff, and two, are able to articulate it because a lot of the people who are quote unquote open books are often like, you just gotta hustle. And I'm like, I wanna hang myself from my chandelier. I mean, that, that, that's exactly why there's a lot of step-by-step -step actionable stuff in here because I just hate reading a book telling me what I should be doing but not how. It's terrible, especially, and it's also the hallmark, by the way, if you're out there listening and thinking, how do I evaluate all these experts? It's the hallmark of somebody who cannot teach it to you because they've never done it themselves. If they're missing a major actionable step or 10, it's one of the chief red flags that I actually look for when I talk to potential guests for the show, as well as mentors or anybody I'm getting advice from, because a lot of people just, they, they tend to be vague or gloss over something, and they might just not know how to articulate it. But if I'm done questioning them and I still don't get it, and they keep returning to platitudes or something, I know that either they haven't done it or there's so much luck and or timing involved that it's not reproducible. Right, right, and that's what I love about you and your show. You run an amazing podcast. I listen to it. It's one of the few that I listen to because I just value my time so much. So I appreciate you and what you do and I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, brother. Interesting show. I definitely didn't start with the book content there and I think it was sort of a subconscious-ish choice, Jason, because I don't want it to sound like every other show that Pat's going to be doing during this launch. The book proves to be good, though. I mean, he's a smart guy, and he's definitely walked the walk, which is more than I can say for a lot of quote-unquote passive income online internet marketer type people who I typically don't have on the show, frankly. He's a good friend of mine, and I think he's the legit real deal. So check out that book, willitflybook.com. 
If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Pat on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the other resources and his book, of course, mentioned on the show. You can tap the album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes right on your phone. I'm also on Twitter at The Art of Charm. Bootcamp details at bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. We sell out a few months early, so check it out, get some info, plan ahead. Subscribe in iTunes. We've got our iPhone and Android apps as well. Special thanks to both the Jasons and Fogarty for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.